This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Monday was a marvelous day for the American Hockey League, specifically in Laval at the uh, Theatre Marcelin Champagnon, where, amongst others, Dave Andrews takes his rightful place in the American Hockey League Hall of Fame. Dave joins me now. Dave, first of all, congratulations. Thanks so much for doing this. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jeff. Back in Arizona, it was cold in Montreal, but we had a fantastic weekend. Uh, was really <laughs> Really an honor to participate in it and to have our family there and all my kids and some of my grandkids was really special. Well, you know, I, I'm always, and first of all, such a well-deserved, uh, well-deserved honor. I mean, this, this league, I mean, uh, before you was Jack Butterfield and now it's run by Scott House. And like, there have been some, some really you know, influential hockey people that have run the American Hockey League. And, and one of the things that I was just talking to Elliot about a second ago, as I, as I look back at your uh, tenure from 94 to 2020, uh, running the American Hockey League is... Um, there are a lot of challenges, and I want to ask you about the uh, the IHL here in a couple of moments. But what always impressed me uh, with how you ran things is you were always thinking about innovation and doing things differently and trying new things. Sometimes it was just for the league itself. Sometimes it was, you know, see if an idea could graduate uh, into the National Hockey League. Um, when you look back at, at your time in the, uh, in the American Hockey League, how would you describe the way you ran the, the, uh, the AHL? Gosh, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think from the very beginning, my, my thought was that we needed to respect the league more and to build more of a respect around the hockey industry for the American Hockey League and for what it stood for and what it could be. And, uh, you know, we had a vision of, of bringing the American Hockey League further down the path towards being a player development league for, for the NHL. And that both financially and from the perspective of the quality of our competition, uh, going in that direction and partnering with NHL clubs um, in, a, in a more direct way in, in the player development area was going to be the key to our success. Um, so I, I think it was trying to... I guess, move away from the sense that we were a bus league or a minor league or uh, something less than a high-quality league with with solid leadership, with a good vision, with good strategic planning, and with a real respect for the game and for our players. And I, I think that's kind of been the basis for how we went about our business for 26-odd years as president. And it's, it's now probably 35 years I've been in the league. I started with the Oilers, as you know, back in 87. So it's been a long run. Yep. Uh, it has, and and listen, even before that, and I, I wonder when you're when you're putting together a speech um, like you did for Monday, or you're, you're thinking about the career. Uh, you know, so many different times when I've I've talked to Bob McGill, uh, he'll talk about Victoria and the Western League, and, and your name will pop up, and Grant Fuhrer's name will will uh, will pop up. How often do you let your brain go back to the Victoria days? Uh, actually, pretty often. It's it's funny, uh, you know, with Grant. I see Grant uh, uh, quite often, and we always reminisce about those days. And when I first started coaching in Victoria, I was uh, an assistant coach, and particularly was working on goaltending. And Grant was our goalie, and I could tell you that that I contributed absolutely nothing to his development. He was he was, <laughs> he was a terrific terrific goalkeeper, and he probably wouldn't have listened to anything I suggested anyway. But I, I reflect back on those days a lot, and one of the reasons is that Mark Morrison, who is coaching in Manitoba right now, where my son works, 
Mm-hmm. Mark was the captain of our team uh, in, uh, I guess, the, the first year I was the head coach. And uh, we've been friends for life, and I still see Mark all the time. So there's always a lot of reflecting back on that. And I think, too, uh, when I was getting ready for my Hall of Fame acceptance speech, other than making sure it was short, uh, I, I thought about the people more than anything. I mean, as you look back over the years, it's all about the people you meet. And and in the American Hockey League, like, you know, I had a lot of the best people. Some of them moved on to the National Hockey League, clearly. And But I look back, and, and, and when I started, Bruce Boudreaux was playing in the American Hockey League, and and uh, Rick Bonus was in his first year of coaching, and you know where he is now in terms of the number of games coached in the National Hockey League. Um, and and uh, Pat Burns was uh, was just starting coaching pro hockey in Sherbrooke. Um, it, it's it's um, Claude Julian was playing in Fredericton. So you know you think back, that's a that's a lot of a lot of hockey and a lot of changes and a lot of growth. And it, but mostly it's about the people you meet. I think. You know, and 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 uh, the the one thing too, and I'll, I'll I'll use this to dovetail into the IHL talk here is there's been a lot of challenge. There were a lot of challenges for you, a lot of challenges for the American Hockey League. Um, there were you know a lot of changes. It seemed as if you know at the end of uh, almost uh, every season for a while, you and I would talk and I'd say, okay, which affiliation is going where here? How are you going to make this this jigsaw puzzle work? But I, I think the biggest now, correct me if I'm wrong, like the the biggest challenge that you would have faced would have been both competing against the International Hockey League and then absorbing, what was it, six teams from the, from the yeah. IHL? Uh, what, what, like, what are your memories from, because that was a really difficult time, certainly, and, and a challenging time. What were some of the, the main issues you had to work through absorbing six teams from another league? Well, getting to that point was was challenging, and you're right. I mean, the, the the single most important thing that happened during my my tenure was was that 2001 expansion where we brought six IHL teams into our into our fold, and uh, the IHL went away. But when I started uh, in '94, um, we would certainly, if, if you'd asked anyone which league is going to be the surviving league of the two, I think 90% of people would have told you the International Hockey League. They had far more money they had bigger markets they had significant ownership um and thank goodness they had kind of a flawed vision of of how that was going to play out um and and we just stuck to our hockey side vision of being a a quality development league for the nhl and just kept kind of banging away at it and um you know we we moved into a bunch of new markets because we needed to and and we we were pretty aggressive from an expansion point of view and we were very aggressive from approaching NHL teams and saying, do you want your prospects playing in a league like what we are and what we're going to be, or do you want them playing in the IHL with all the older players and not getting quality ice time and that sort of thing? Um, it, it was tough. I mean, we were we were really uh, in a battle, and uh, the two leagues didn't get along whatsoever. And, uh, you know, fortunately, their model uh, really depended a lot, Jeff, on expansion fees, and the, the expansion fees were supporting the operations of, of the league for the most part. Uh, and of each individual team, they were losing money, but the expansion revenue helped them stay afloat. Well, when that when that dried up, uh, their business model just didn't mm-hmm. work. And in, in 2001, I, I'm really thankful for uh, Mark Chipman in Winnipeg, who has become a, a very dear friend of mine. But, you know, Mark, uh, Mark and I were the ones that negotiated the agreement between uh, the, the sort of IHL teams that wanted to get out uh, and ourselves. And it was it was a 
a hard negotiation, but we could see the value of bringing, you know, creating one league at the highest level of of, uh, of minor pro hockey, and and eventually that would lead us to that 30-30 league, which is now a 32-32 league, which has amazing value mm-hmm. for everybody involved in it and for the National Hockey League, obviously. But you know, Mark was Mark played a, a big role in that. He was. Uh, the leagues didn't like each other, but Mark and I found out pretty quickly that we liked each other, and we could find a we could find some middle ground. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I always wondered about. I don't think you and I have ever discussed this during the uh, the ninety four ninety five lockout. Um, so the NHL is dark. Did you ever think that there was a chance that? You know, nature abhors a vacuum. Um, that there was a chance that the international league at that point was at a point in their development where they could create a loop that actually, I mean, rivaled might be too strong, but really maybe even challenged the NHL. Was there ever that thought in your head? I think I think that thought was in their head. Um, it certainly wasn't in mine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we saw we saw the work stoppage as an opportunity for us from a branding point of view. It opened up some opportunities for the AHL to be on television in both Canada and the United States, and uh, that was a big opportunity for us. That was the year of our first All Star game. We so every you know every time there was a labor stoppage in in, in the NHL, you know it, everyone could see that it might happen. And we were very well prepared for each one of those. And we negotiated, and you would know this probably, but I mean, we negotiated some TV agreements in, in Canada with, well, oh, yeah. sometimes TSN, sometimes Sportsnet, sometimes CBC, where we took advantage yeah. of, the, of the labor stoppage to get us an extra couple of years of television after that year. So, um, you know, each one of those yep. were kind of helpful to us. And we had great players in our league during those those labor stoppages too, as you know. So, um, you know, you, you sort of have to yep. take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Uh, with Dave Andrews, uh, who goes who went in the, to, excuse me, who went into the uh, American Hockey League Hockey Hall of Fame on uh, on Monday in Laval, um, uh, amongst amongst the you know a, a number of people as well, and it was, I'd love to see Creighton go in. Um, Adam Creighton's father. I, I love the fact that, and I, I really kind of wish that the uh, the National Hockey League, or not the NHL, but rather the Hockey Hall of Fame, would would do more of this, and you know, just sort of do like you know uh, historical oversight. Uh, it was great to see Creighton go in. It was great to see O'Coin go in and, and Baumgartner, etc. Um, I, I am curious about a couple of things. Uh, your tenure as the president and CEO of the American Hockey League. How often did teams from the NHL reach out just to see if you'd be interested in leaving to join their organization? Uh, three times. <laughs> Ever close? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I did have conversations, and um, but I, I actually, as time went on, um, and I felt as though I was really pretty far removed from the from the actual hockey side of our business on a day to day basis. Uh, you, you began to question whether you would be capable as a general manager, where you'd lost your some of the hockey connections I had when I left the Oilers organization and and took the job with the AHL. I mean, I think for a few years, it really stood me in good stead, especially with our players association that I, you know, I really was close to the, to the hockey operations side of, of, of the NHL and the AHL. But as time went on, I realized that I was becoming pretty good at the job that I had and that I might not be so good at, uh, at being a national hockey league general manager. And it would be a, 
um, you know, just might not be the greatest idea to go. So as time went on, I, I, I kind of lost interest in that in that option. Um, I, I would say, um, I thought you were going to go there, so I, I want to jump into Bill Torrey also being uh, um, inducted, mm-hmm. uh, the late Bill Torrey, and his four sons were there in Laval. And uh, Bill and I became really, really close friends over the years, and, and uh, it was very special for me to uh, uh, to go in in the same induction ceremony as Bill. Um, Bill was on our selection committee up until he passed away, and our Hall of Fame selection committee. And, and And Bill kept saying to me, "You know, you should let me nominate you for for our Hall of Fame." And I said, "No, I don't want to do that um, while I'm still working, and I, I don't even want to think about it." And as it turned out, it was just kind of bizarre that in, in in waiting and then with COVID and we end up in the same in the same induction class yeah. and it was it was that was really special for me let, let, let me ask I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Bill Torrey's name because we were just in Florida for the NHL all-star and so Bill Torrey's name will be all and, and was all over the place and um, I've mentioned this uh, before that I, I think that you know, no disrespect to the the Sam Pollocks of the world, but I think that Bill Torrey was the greatest general manager the NHL ever saw. Um, and he started, he created not just a championship, but he created a dynasty starting with a blank piece of paper. And you don't do that um, without, you know, understanding the entire ecosystem of an organization. And that stretches down to uh, to the minor hockey affiliate, the, um, to, the, uh, to the AHL affiliate as well. What was Bill Torrey like to work alongside, uh, you know, when he was running NHL teams and you were in the American League? What was he like to work alongside? He was uh, not only one of the best general managers in history, he's one of the best people in history of the National Hockey League. Like Bill Torrey had time for everyone, and he cared about everyone in the game. And I mean, legitimately cared. He would have conversations with people who worked on our staff and people who were working in the American Hockey League, and he came to all of our board meetings and all of our executive committee meetings. And this will tell you something, but when he came to our board meetings, he sat. he, he didn't sit at the board table, he sat at the back of the room and never missed. I mean, to think Bill Torrey, who was already in the Hockey Hall of Fame, was sitting in the in this sort of third row of seats at the American Hockey League board meeting. But he was always there, and he provided wonderful counsel. And and he was just uh, he really loved the American Hockey League. Like his history in the game, you know it, Jeff. How far back it went, and and started with the Pittsburgh Hornets. But he he never lost right. his love for the American Hockey League, and it and it showed. You know, he and he gave always gave me great counsel and the funniest part of our relationship was that if you look back at Florida's American Hockey League history it was it was a pretty checkered pretty checkered past of all the affiliations <laughs> that they had and and how yes. many markets they went to that weren't successful and so that's how I got to know him so well is there was always a crisis with Florida Panthers AHL team and um, <laughs> and you know there was a lot of meetings where you know over a beer where we'd kind of almost laugh at how ridiculous it was we were back together again trying to sort out uh, you know issues with the independent owner and whatever team it was and and with with the player supply from florida and whatever whatever the issues were but you know we we really got to know each other well and figured out how to solve some problems together He, he was a terrific person Wonderful guy. Um, greatly missed uh, in hockey circles. Well, listen, uh, Monday was wonderful for you and for the late Bill Torrey and Nolan Baumgartner and Keith O'Coyne and Fred Creighton. Like, it was a, a, a wonderful day. Congratulations to everyone, and certainly you, Dave. Uh, I've known you for a long time. Uh, you're one of the most widely 
respected uh, and admired uh, people uh, during your tenure uh, with the American Hockey League, and and that remains to this day. Just hearing people talk, and it's talking to Elliot uh, about you a couple of seconds ago, and you know, anyone, every time I mention your name, um, respect is always um, at the top of everyone's mind. So you know, wonderful job as you ran the uh, the American Hockey League, and uh, good to see you in your rightful place in uh, in the American Hockey League Hall of Fame. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Jeff. Very kind of you. Thanks. Dave Andrews, uh, former CEO and president of the American Hockey League, goes into the AHL Hall of Fame on Monday uh, alongside, I'm glad he brought up Bill Torrey, uh, Bowtie, uh, the greatest general manager of the game has ever seen. And you mentioned Pittsburgh Hornets as well. I'm pretty sure Torrey would have started in the marketing department with the uh, with the Pittsburgh Hornets. I don't know if he was like selling programs or what, but... I'm pretty sure that's where he got his start um, sometime in the, the early to mid-60s. Anyhow, uh, we'll hit a break. going to come back and talk about this wonderful book. Um, it's been out for a little while now called Conflicted Scars, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL. Author and former hockey player Justin Davis joins me in moments. Uh, as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Back in a moment. Breaking down the biggest trends in hockey. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, so in a couple of minutes here, we're going to welcome Justin Davis to the program, former uh, standout in the Ontario Hockey League, won a Memorial Cup with the Ottawa 67s, standout with the University of Western Mustangs, won a national championship there, and is now the author of a uh, book called Conflicted Scars. It's been out for a little bit now. An Average Player's Journey to the NHL. I read this on my way to Florida and uh, could not put it down, uh, encourage all hockey fans to read this one. It's a fascinating look um, at one person's journey through hockey, drafted uh, as well into the NHL by the, uh, the Washington Capitals. In the meantime, we kick off Hour 2 the same way every day, or at least we try to, with the random player of the day, Matt Marchese. We'll bring you aboard once again. And who do we have for the random today? Uh, that would be Doug Smale, um, and this one was sent in by Craig Birch, who got, he's from Fife, Scotland, where Doug Smale ended up going to play after his NHL career was done. He sure did, and there is a, um, so there, there's a couple of things on, well, first of all, he was the first NHL player to go directly from the NHL to the British Elite League. He was the first one to make that jump. I want to say that Don Edwards, the old Buffalo Sabres goaltender, was either the general manager of Fife or was the general manager of another team and recommended uh, that they inquire about Doug Smale. I think Fife was trying to put together sort of a British super team and Smale ended up scoring like 163 or 170 points in his first season there. That was a, a, a glorious success. So Doug Smale is from, if I can read this correctly, Maddie, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. I know you'd like that one. <laughs> or as I was, as I was quickly corrected when I went there for for Memorial Cup, um, only people from Toronto call it Saskatchewan. Uh, it's called Saskatchewan, and I said, well, I am from Toronto, so that's why I call it Saskatchewan. But yes, I've been corrected, and I always maintain it now. 
is properly referred to as Saskatchewan. Um, went to North Dakota, was never drafted, always considered a little bit undersized, signed by the Winnipeg Jets. Um, real good penalty killer, 28 shorthanded goals in his career. And the, the one thing that will always stand out about Doug Smale is he scored... Let me grab this here. He scored the fastest goal off the opening faceoff in the history of the NHL. Now, a couple of other people have done it, and there's a backstory to it as well with an even more obscure name they're going to drop on you here, Maddie, in a couple of seconds. So, December 20th, 1981, Winnipeg Jets facing off against the St. Louis Blues. Opening faceoff, puck comes back to Ed Kia. He stumbles. Smale goes in and scores on a goaltender. Not many will remember, but because he only played two games by the name, a goaltender by the name of Paul Skidmore. Now, why this event was historic was that was Paul Skidmore's first NHL game, and there were two records set on that play. One, Doug Smale scored five seconds into a game. That's one record. Has been you know tied since. Brian Trotche, I think, was the one right after to tie it. Um, but no goaltender has ever allowed a quicker goal to start his career than Paul Skidmore did with the St. Louis Blues surrendering Doug Smale's goal in five seconds. So two records set there on one play. The interesting thing about the five-second uh, record is when the NHL, you'll like this one, when the NHL uh, started digitizing all their old games and tried to you know put together their library, what they discovered was there was a guy by the name, he was born in Richmond Hill, it's a guy by the name of Merlin Phillips, who, when he played with the Maroons, scored a goal in five seconds to start a game as well. So it was a record that had already been set but hadn't been recorded until the NHL started to digitize all of their old videos and found out that it wasn't Doug Smale, after all, who said it. Doug Smale tied it, but Merlin Phillips was the first one that said it. Um, 11 seasons with the Winnipeg Jets and then bounced around, played with Minnesota, played with Quebec, played with the Ottawa Senators' first-ever NHL team, which was coached by Rick Bonus. Uh, and that's me exhausting the mind tank on Doug Smale. Maddie Marchese, what do you think? Yeah, it's pretty good. He was a he was a star at North Dakota, and I love I love the the numbers. Like I understand that going from the NHL to the British Hockey League is a totally different world. But when you see numbers like <laughs> seventy four goals and sixty five assists in fifty three games, you go, hmm. I don't care what league that is. Yep. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, I, I do like that five-second one. And just checking here, um, not only did Brian Trache do that, but Alex McGillney did it in 1991 as well until, you know, Mervyn Phillips came around. Mervyn, by the way, played for the Sioux Greyhounds. Went back when it was a senior loop about a, about a million years ago. Um, the record was set on December 29th, 1926. Anyway, there you go. So kind of a... Random player bio on uh, Doug Smale, um, Merlin Phillips, and Paul Skidmore. So it's a three-for-one today, Maddie. on random. Should be random players of the day today. Yeah, that was pretty good. Even, even good for you. All right. 
It's not bad. It's not bad. All right. Uh, for your chance to nominate your own random player of the day, JM Show at sportsnet.ca um, gives us something to do at night while we watch hockey games. All right, Maddie, we'll bring you aboard to Bottom of the Hour for some, uh, for some QOD talk. Now, if, um, if you're watching on 360 right now, uh, you'll see me holding up a book. This is what I had with me on the plane on way to All-Star in Fort Lauderdale. Conflicted Scars, an average player's journey to the NHL. Uh, hockey player turned author Justin Davis with a forward by Killer, Brian Kilray, who Davis talks a lot about in this book. Um, Justin Davis, hockey player turned author, joins me now on the Merrick Show. Justin, thanks so much for, A, holding on while we blathered on about Doug Smale and Paul Skidmore and uh, Mervyn Phillips. Um, thanks so much for holding on and thanks for coming on today. How are you? Great, thanks for having me. It's, uh, I was having a flashback to my uh, old OPG cards, and I think I had a Doug Smale card in there. <laughs> <clears throat> were you a big Were you a big hockey card kid growing up? I mean, I was. I still have albums and books full of. My kids love it now too. Were you a big hockey card kid growing up? Yeah, I think we all were. And you think back, like what you put in your body. I just think back of those uh, stale sticks of gum that came in. You'd have no problem chewing those back oh, yeah. in the day, but. Uh, just the smell. I think you can still smell the cards now, uh, even when you get to be 44 years old. I, I know it's it's interesting. You know, it, it's um, whenever you ask someone if if you had to lose one of your, you know, one of your um, one of your senses, would you lose a sight or a touch or hearing? Usually, people say, "Oh, I could do without the sense of smell." But the interesting thing about smell is that's the one that's most linked with memory and nostalgia. And like that's one of the reasons why I like doing this random player of the day thing because it's just like that look back at hockey and it's nostalgic and I'll dovetail into into your book using that because like said, I've um, I've covered the OHL for a number of years I remember watching you play I remember covering that Ottawa uh, that Ottawa team that won the Memorial Cup um, real great squad um, was really saddened as we all were uh, earlier on this year to learn of the passing of, of Lance Galbraith but. Um, before we start to drill down on a few things, the one thing that I'm really curious about, as, as, I, as, I'm reading, as I'm reading your book going to Florida, and I get about halfway in, and I start to wonder to myself, who is he writing this book for? Like when you sit down to write a book, you think, okay, I'm intending this for parents. I'm intending this book for you know, guys that I played with. I'm intending this for, you know, the, the cautionary tale for, for someone else or an inspirational story. for so- Like when you're writing this, Justin, who in your mind is your reader? Well, I think the initial target to where the landing point of uh, the published book is uh, was a bit of a journey. Uh, four years ago, I was on short-term disability with a back injury and having uh, severe post-concussion problems with uh, cognitive issues and headaches. And, um, Someone dropped off a book, uh, Game Changer, by Ken Dryden, and it was about Steve Monador. And I played against Steve, and some of my best friends were best friends with Steve. And when I put the book down, my opinion was was that hockey culture killed Steve and led to uh, kind of the last few uh, months of his life and and how things ended up. So I told myself I was going to write. I had a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 9-year-old at the time, and I said, I'm just going to write down some thoughts, 10, 15 pages about my hockey career and who I was and who their dad was. And uh, and maybe in 10, 15 years, if these uh, brain issues I was having, uh, um, I was forgetting some things, I could pass that on to them. And it turned into, as I started writing, it turned into about a 200-page book and a publisher picked it up. And now my target 
even though my my kids know too much of my story, I think uh, now my target is number one former <laughs> former teammates is a great one. Uh, I've had so many former yeah. teammates and people I played against, uh, and they've been reaching out, and um, it's given them an avenue to talk about mental health, tell their story, and um, and just talking. We were told you don't talk about things, and what's said in the room stays in the room. So that's an initial target too mm-hmm. now, and and parents. I mean. My kid just went through, he's 16 years old, just finished playing AAA, and these people, parents put so much trust into sending their kids away to the GTHL at 11, 12, and, and sending their kids to junior, but not really asking questions, who's the coach, who are they living with? So, uh, long-winded answer, but it started off to my kids, and it ended up in in a just a very different direction. When uh, and this is this is documented in the in the book, but I'm I'm curious if you can expand on it and and your your further thoughts. Um, when did for for you like when did hockey start to lose some of the shine? Like when when you're a kid and you're, you know you're uh, you're you're growing up and you're playing, you're you know in a small town Ontario and you're you're dominating, and you know, every time you you take another step, you continue to dominate. At a, at a certain point. It, it changes for a lot of people. Um, and for some, it just feels like a job. And then you get deep into your career. Like if you ask a lot of NHLers, you know, do you still love hockey like you used to? You know, by and large, you'll say, well, maybe I still love it, but it's different now. When did it become different for Justin Davis? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I think when it becomes a job, number one, but I think when the veil's kind of taken down about who your heroes were. So I think my first training camp and oh, yeah. I get to training camp and you see Peter Bondra and Joe Juno and Olaf Kolzig. And I think I've alienated your, uh, your, your uh, younger listeners, but these were guys I looked up to. So then when you start hanging out with For people sure. in the summer and you, you start seeing them all of a sudden you realize these are normal people and you held these people to just a, a different status than you did. So, once you realize they're normal people and then it becomes a job and you go through injuries and you're putting your skates on every day for probably 300 days out of the 365 days, it just it, it just becomes a grind. And like anything else, it, there's some great days and some bad mm-hmm. days. But I think that was for me when, when things became a job and when I realized uh, what it took to make it to the next level. You know, I want to get to the uh, the Memorial Cup season with the Ottawa 67s, but before we get there, there's a uh, like there's a lot of difficult. I'll be honest, like there's a lot of really difficult sections of this book to read, and there's a lot of you know moments where you got to put the book down and really think about things. And some of those things happened in Kingston. Some of those happened in in Sault Ste. Marie. Um, when you look back, you know, getting into Ottawa, and I know how much Brian Kilray means to you from reading this book means a lot to a lot of people. Um, when you think back to the early days playing in the, the OHL when you first broke in, what are some of the, the moments that changed you, changed the way you felt about hockey, maybe made you think about quitting? What were some of the big touchstone moments for you, Justin? Well, I think initially um, you're just happy to be there, right? You, um, you're playing major junior hockey and there's 4,000 people watching you play and I'd been healthy scratch for the first bit of the season. Someone got injured, and I came into the game, and I was—I got a hat trick my first game, and just everything went my way. And I thought hockey's great; this is fantastic. And the rest of the year just went—it mm. couldn't have gone any better. I scored 30 goals as a rookie, was drafted 85th overall by the Washington Capitals, and then just hit a wall the next year. Couldn't do anything right, and had a major concussion. And uh, by the end of the year, 
I was in a hospital in ICU with bleeding on the brain, and uh, my team was basically fighting with me to pay my hospital bills because I was in the U.S. And you think in a matter of one calendar year, you go from on top of the world and thinking hockey is the greatest sport ever and I'm going to make the NHL to wondering if you're going to play again and really questioning your love of the game. So it, it was a really, really tough year, and it was the first time I really experienced severe adversity and um, I thought everything was, was roses playing in the OHL, and that was the first time I realized it's, uh, it's very difficult. What was your first fight like? <laughs> well, it's funny. My agent was Alan Walsh, and for everyone that knows Alan Walsh, he's the biggest promoter ever. And um, I was having a great year, and he kept saying, well, I had like 12 penalty minutes. And <clears throat> um, he wasn't saying go fight, but I just it just it would help my draft status. So I remember I just picked out a guy in the uh, in the book who had both the same penalty minutes, was the same size, and. I figured that if I hit him first, then uh, then bad things uh, wouldn't happen to me. So, I remember, it was in North Bay, and and I did well, and uh, and I came home, and that night, Alan had, uh, and this is the day where there's no internet, and Alan had already called and said, I heard about yeah. your fight, fantastic. I'm going to contact Redline Report, and I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> so, uh, that's what I remember the most about it. Uh, he does promote his guys like that. Continue, you know, Alan. Like it continues to this day. Like there, there, are, there are a few like Alan Wash at at uh, at promoting his players. Um, what was the agency like? I mean, you write about it uh, in, in the book as well. Uh, speaking to Justin Davis, author of Conflicted Scars, um, what was the agent scene like for you? Because I know that there was an original agent you had, and then you dovetailed to Alan Walsh as well. What was it like opening your eyes to that side of hockey? Well, it's funny. I, I work with the Guelph Storm right now, and I'll wait after the game sometimes for players just to say hello. And you see some of the same people that were there when I was 16 years old. So um, you end up with an agent. A lot of the time, even with parents now, yeah. someone tells you your kid's special. Um, you want to sign with them right away. So I had an agent not really knowing what I was doing, and um, they just never returned my calls. So Alan showed up at the old Kingston Memorial Gardens, and he had cowboy boots and a suit on, and I was like, who is this guy? And uh, I ended up becoming his first client, and he was the first agent out of my first three that actually returned calls, and it would vouch for me. And it means a lot. People think uh, people think that all these agents represent people, but at the same time, when you have a 1,000 people, you're just hoping, um, hoping one of them sticks so that you get the commission on their contract, but there's very few of them that actually care about your well-being. Sure. Um, speaking of Alan, how much did you grill him about the OJ case? It's funny, that was his first thing. So a lot of people don't know that, but Alan was uh, on the uh, prosecution team and he had just come from L.A. and he was, obviously, everyone was glued to that that case when we were younger and uh, I was asking about uh, everything. So... He gave me uh, he gave me a little bit of insight. Obviously, he can't tell you everything being involved with it, but uh, that was it's funny. Here you are looking for a hockey agent. And the selling point is that he was working on the OJ case. <laughs> uh, alongside Justin Davis, uh, I want to get to Brian Kilray. So I've had everybody has like anyone who's had a, a passing in the the Ontario League has had you know wonderful conversations and great moments and has heard a number of stories. Uh, whether it's stories about Anne Murray on the bus, whether it's stories about the cigars, um, boxing gloves, all of it, uh, have all have you know wonderful things to say about Brian Kilray. What did what did Brian Kilray mean to you? Like, and 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 did he come along at the perfect time in your life? 
Yeah, I talked about before where I ended up in the Sioux and I uh, was in the hospital and coming off a serious injury and I knew they wanted to trade me and the coaches weren't really talking to me and you just felt like a piece of meat and you felt like just a a cog kind of in the armor for the team. They just wanted to get rid of you and uh, Brian called me at home and he said, uh, every time you played me, you seem to score. So if you can do the same for me, it's going to work out. So uh, I got traded there and then there he is, this this man and he's larger than life and he said oh you're coming home with me tonight you're going to stay with judy and i and so i built it at his house for uh for two nights and i ate dinner with him and it was the first time i had a conversation just like a human being and we we talked about hockey we talked about life and took me downstairs to his uh, recliner and uh he had this old rotary phone if you remember the rotary phones and i remember trying to use my calling card and and calling out on it wasn't working, and he had a beer fridge, and he had all this stuff. And I'm like, who is this guy? But uh, he doesn't – it's just an aura about him, and it's just who he is. And it, and it changed my life, and it was. I realized yeah. that hockey was fun again, and I enjoyed coming to the rink. His practices are legendary for being simple. What was a Brian Kilray practice like for Justin Davis? Same practice every day, and I laugh because I run into guys that I don't know that played from before me and after me, and we sit down and we go through the drills one by one, right? You blow the whistle, you take three hard strides, and then you get into some cross-corner dump drills, and it was the exact same every day, and the pace was high, but it would just make you laugh, and Brian would always stand. The only coach this day would stand dead center of the ice with all the pucks around him. So he'd run a three-on-two breakout double regroup drill, and he'd be just zipping the puck around him, hoping to knock, knock him over. But once a year, someone would hit the pucks or hit him, and it'd be like a slow motion, just fall at center ice, and you'd be biting your lip, trying not to laugh. But uh, uh, it was just, he'd do things that, it's funny that you have a practice, the same people are running in 1982 and 1999. It's, uh, he's a remarkable guy. Um, the The title of the book is, conflicted scars so the first thing you know when i when i got the book is okay so i'm guessing this is going to be you know uh war stories injury stories from a time in hockey and uh the author is torn between i loved being part of it but i have some serious reservations about what happened the term conflicted scars what is that intended to mean well every day i wake up i see a 12-stitch scar from my nose to my lip, and I can't raise my shoulders because I separated both three times and had it frozen for a playoff run for a month. And I, like I told you, I was on short-term disability with my back. But these are all things that I just had pride in, that I accomplished something, and this is what being a hockey player is. And then I realized as I got older and stepped away from the game that I just had so many internal scars as well, like dealing with anxiety and depression and I do things a certain way. I mean, to set my alarm clock, it would take me about five minutes because I was afraid to miss the bus or something, and I'm just (laughs) getting ready for work. And just all these little things. So Mm -hmm. I was conflicted. Like you said, I loved large parts of my career. I loved winning championships and so many great teammates. But things I went through, nobody our age should have gone through. And when I saw my 16-year-old son um, trying to make a bagel and going upstairs and forgetting about it and almost lighting the kitchen on fire, I I was thinking, here I am. At that age, I was sitting in a bus yeah. for initiation with other players and going through things I never should have. So so uh, people read the book, and 
they're like, well, is everything bad? No, I, I, there's parts that were great, and that's the part of me that's conflicted. And, and when you're writing it, you're talking about a great memory, but then it would trigger something that happened that never should have happened to a 16-year-old. You mentioned working with the uh, with the with the, the Guelph Storm, and I've known Scott Walker for it's, it seems like a, a a million years. I actually used to play roller hockey against him in the summers. Remember one time he challenged our bench, and nobody came off. Surprise, surprise, uh, to, to to take on Scotty Walker. But um, how different is junior hockey now than when you played? And that wasn't that long ago. Like you would have finished up in '99. Yeah, it's very different. When people talk about, well, I talk about some hazing stuff in it. A lot of that doesn't exist in the CHL, and they've done their best to curb it. But at the same time, stuff's still going on in junior B, junior C, and lower level levels of hockey that, that needs to be fixed. But with Scott and the Guelph Storm, they've given me uh, just an avenue to come in. So I do uh, player mentorship, and I run a chapel program through them that's totally voluntary. And uh, here's this guy that's probably 300, 400 minutes a year in penalties, but he's encouraging me to come in and talk to the team and, and work with guys to make sure that yeah. if something happens, I mean, so many franchises you look at, I mean, it's a coach GM or the coach is related to the GM. And so are you going to report something to them? Yeah. Like, of course not. But with Scott and them, they've given me kind of um, a different voice that players can come to if they're, if they're struggling or they want to talk to, talk to somebody. Cause I've, I've been through everything that they're going to go through. So They've been great, and there's a lot of teams that do that, and that's a positive way that junior hockey teams are going. So when I tell these stories from the past that are negative, not everything's negative, and I'm just trying to encourage people through the book to to reach out and start programs and realize that mental health is important. How are the kids, how are the junior hockey kids, maybe it's unfair because listen, yeah. you don't have context for it, right, when you're going through it because you're a kid going through junior hockey. But as much as you can recall, how are kids different now um, than they were when you played in the OHL? Hockey almost feels robotic now. <laughs> it's 12 months a year, and mm-hmm. going through with my own son, if you almost feel a guilt trip if you don't sign your kid up for the 7 a.m. power skating at when he's seven, eight years old. And it's, it's like play multiple <laughs> oh, yeah. sports. Like, I think if you talk to anybody, uh, they played multiple sports and they played baseball and they played lacrosse, but you're almost guilted into the fact that if you don't have a mental skills coach and you don't have uh, a nutritionist, uh, looking at the OHL um, application or kind of the, the form my son filled out for the draft, it was like, who is your mental skills coach or who is your skills coach? And all these questions. And I'm like, these just play hockey. Yeah. So I think that's changed. It's specialized. And I think parents have mm-hmm. a different dream than our parents had. I think there's so much access to um, being an NHL superstar or playing in the GTHL or moving away. Our small-town kids played for small-town teams when we played, and those were our best friends, and I think we were better served. So um, it's definitely a different game and very specialized, and it's crazy to see some of the stuff that you see. I've got a couple of kids. Like I know what you're talking. I'm, I'm smiling inside here as you're talking about this because I've got a couple of uh, young kids that play high level hockey. You know, AAA hockey, and uh, I, I see the exact same thing. And the the other thing that I the I, that I see a lot of now is kids that jump every year from you know from team to team to team to team, looking for that you know the the better coach, the more ice time, the blah blah the the whatever. And I always think to myself, like, one of the great things that I took out, and I had, like, a very, very marginal, you know, uh, uh, minor hockey career, youth hockey career. But at the end of all of it, I had great friends. 
Right. I had like really great friends because I basically stuck with one with one program, bounced around a little bit, but not much. And I look at kids now, and I know I'm going to sound like you know old man shakes fist at clouds. I know I'm going to sound like grandpa on the rocking chair. Oh, things were better back. But I look at kids now, and they're jumping from team to team to team. And I say to myself, you know, I used to measure, you know, um, my success by how many friends that I would make at the end of the year. And when you're going from team to team to team, you might be a great hockey player, but how many friends do you have coming out of it? Like maybe, I, maybe I'm off base and that's not really important or that's not what hockey's for. But for me, it meant something. And I think it meant, a lot of, meant something to a lot of other people as well. I just look at kids now and say, if you're not on the same team for more than one year, like how many friends are you going to have when, when you're finally all done? But I think they're being rewarded for that. I mean, when you look at these kids getting drafted, they've played on four different GTHL teams. But if you look at the OHL draft, 75% of the draft last year was from the GTHL. So, I mean, I kept my kid in the Guelph system his entire career, and he didn't get drafted, and he played against some unbelievable players that didn't get looked at. So I think the game is rewarding that. And I totally agree with you. Like, my our best players on our hockey team were our outfielders on our baseball team. And those are, our, and we talk about those mm-hmm. days and, um, and back to your, your skill stuff you're talking about. I mean, uh, you're, you're bullied into doing the skill stuff. So if, I mean, a new guy comes in that nobody's met and he's got a parachute and a trampoline running power skating, parents are blown away and are saying, this guy is, you got it. You can't believe what this guy's doing on the ice. So, and they'll drop $300, $400 to go to this guy because he's the new guru. So, it's tough. You want kids to get the kids to get better. I mean, Connor McDavid has done all this stuff, and he's a generational player, and he's probably the player he is because he's done all this. But not everybody has the ability to do that. So we're losing sight of just blowing through a minor hockey career. And I talk about in the book, you should be looking forward to getting into the car for two hours with your kid to drive to a double A hockey game when they're fourteen, because. They don't yeah. usually want to talk to you in the first place. So we're just missing different parts of it. You know, I, I like what Adam Oates says. So Adam's an elite trainer for, you know, elite, you know, NHLers and, you know, has a number of, you know, uh, other teachers that have gone through his program. Joey Hishin in this area uh, does it, former uh, Colorado Avalanche first-round draft pick. And Adam's big thing whenever I talk to him is always uh, get the toys off the ice. He goes, on my, on my rink, there's, there's no toys. We're not jumping over things. We're not you know, doing somersaults through things. Like he says, get the toys off the ice. Uh, we're going to try to teach you um, how to be a hockey player. Um, in the couple seconds that I have left with you, um, give me the sell here because you'll do a better job of it than I can. Like I really enjoyed this book. I was, I was enthralled and the flight uh, to Florida went by like that. Conflicted Scars, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL. Give me the sales pitch. I mean, I thought it was a wonderful read. I thought it was a really fair look. Uh, like that's the thing that I like about you in this book is you're honest about yourself and you're honest about everybody around you. But give me the sales pitch, conflicted scars. It's an honest opinion of somebody writing a book that didn't plan on writing about these things and who looked at things without um, <clears throat> with, without a clear direction that he was going into. So the book to me is. I just wanted to rehash everything I've gone through. And when I'm going through that journey, seeing what I would fix for my, my, my own kid and the next generation. So too many times we don't respect people that have been through 
have been through these things before and can give advice. And this is my advice to minor hockey parents. This is my advice to uh, former teammates that we can talk. And this is just a journey. And I found out is the journey, when I say the average player's journey, people say you're not an average player. This is a journey that maybe 10,000 of us have done. And this is the normal hockey journey. And I want people to see that. Um, let me ask you one final question. Yep. What is one fun junior hockey story you can leave us with? <laughs> All right. We were playing, uh, when I was playing in, in Sault Ste. Marie, one of my good friends got cut, uh, across his chin and he got, uh, he got 12, ended up getting, I think, uh, 10 or 11 stitches. And at that time, our trainer, our trainers were like hotel managers and my trainer in Kingston kept his teeth uh, in a cup in the in the trainer's room, and the the term trainer uh, was strong. So he yeah. got caught. He was playing in his hometown of Sudbury, and we only had one trainer. He said, I can't go to the hospital. How are we going to get him there? And his buddies were there because it was his hometown, and they said, well, we'll take him to the hospital. So he took his skates off, put running shoes on, left in his Sioux Greyhounds jersey, had blood all down the front of him. And because he knew the people at the hospital because he was from there, he got stitched up right away. And on the way back yeah. to the game, uh, his buddy said, I can't wait for the game to be over so we can go to semi-formal. And he said, semi-formals tonight? And uh, they said, yeah. He said, well, let's just go right now. The stitches took a little quicker than they should have. So he got his hockey <laughs> in his hockey equipment, blood-covered jersey and running shoes. He showed up to the high school semi-formal. At that time, we were older, so he had a couple drinks. And about 15 minutes in, his buddy said, you should get back for the third period. They're going to wonder where you are. So he got back for the third period and came to the bench. And one of my buddies was in the middle of the bench. And we used to call it the grocery stick where you don't really move. You're right in the middle of the forward and yep. D, but yep. you don't get any shifts. And uh, yep. he sat down beside him, smiled, and kind of blew in his face a little. My buddy said, where have you been? And he said, you have no idea, <laughs> but it's going to be a great story on the bus. So that one always makes so me laugh. Because from the... It was the day before cell phones, the, right? The, Things the, you can't do now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So he goes from the rink to the hospital to semi-formal back to the rink for the third period. And plays it out and gets on the bus and nobody's the wiser. It's awesome. Uh, it's a great book. This has been uh, this has been wonderful. Uh, Justin Davis has been my guest. He's the author of Conflicted Scars: An Average Player's Journey to the NHL. Um, highly encourage this one. You can uh, you can pick it up uh, online at Amazon or elsewhere. It is published through ECW. Uh, Justin, thanks so much for this. Enjoy. You probably spent more time than you bargained for when you woke up this morning with me, but I I wanted to make sure that I had a, a good long conversation with you. It's a great read. Thanks so much for spending time with me today, Justin. Much appreciated. Thank you, Jeff. There he is, uh, Justin Davis, uh, is a former OHL player, uh, assisted on the Memorial Cup winner in 99. I think he assisted on the national winner, playing at Western National Championship game as well. Was a really nice player. I know he'll always downplay it. He was a really skilled player. Um, tough time in Kingston, tough time in Sioux, really found a home with the Ottawa 67s. Uh, okay, we'll, uh, we'll hit a break here. Back with QOD, and the QOD today is who is the most interesting team in advance of trade deadline? Uh, your tweets and your emails after this. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to the program. I want to thank Justin Davis for stopping by. Again, the book is called Conflicted Scars, an Average Player's Journey to the NHL. ECW Press on this one. Um, great book for hockey parents. If you have a son or daughter going through it, this is a good one. Uh, also, uh, in the spirit of great books for hockey parents, uh, Ken Campbell's book. When was this one published? I read this about a million years ago. It's really good. Um, it's called Selling the Dream. Uh, how hockey parents and their kids are paying the price for our national obsession. Remember what year this one came out, but that's that's another good one. If you're looking for if you're a hockey parent, uh, I've given this one out a ton, and I strongly encourage everyone to check out Conflicted Scars. Uh, okay, Maddie Marchese, you're back on the uh, back on the program here with the with the QOD. By the way, I have a quick thought on uh, on uh, on Justin Davis. Uh, yeah, a couple things. One. Um, I think the the most poignant thought about what he said was when you asked him about the or when you asked him to sell the book and he talked about the journey and while people will say, well, he's just an average player and he you know he didn't make the NHL and he said, you know my journey is is you know the more common one for for players that have played junior hockey and I thought I thought that was yes. really important because I think we do forget yes. that a lot. Uh, yeah, we focus a ton a ton on the success stories, right? The lion's share, like the vast, vast majority. Like go to any junior hockey game, go to like a major junior game, a, a junior A game, junior B, go C, junior C, go check out the jungle. Like the majority of these players aren't going to quote unquote make it. Like I know it upsets a lot of parents when I say things like, you know, at, at practice, like, ah, oh, we're making good beer leaguers here. That's what we're doing. We're just making good beer leaguers. Like, no, we're playing triple A's. Kids are going to be, no, they're, they're, we're making good beer leaguers. Whatever they want to do past that is is all their own, but we're making good beer leaguers because the majority, you're right, like the majority, as much as we focus on the success stories, the majority of these players are going to hopefully use hockey for things other than hockey itself, Right, like the old saying, "Use hockey, don't let hockey use you." I mean, that's really true. You ask any player, you know, any player that's gone to to any level of hockey, and they'll tell you that is absolutely true. Because this sport, and I would imagine other sports as well, but for the purposes of this show, this sport can grab you and put you on a certain a certain train track, and will take you down a path that it wants to take you as it uses you along the way. Successful ones are able to say, I have this thing called hockey. I have a very, I have a talent for hockey. I have a skill in this game. I'm going to use hockey for other things. Ultimately, I think those are successful ones. Use hockey to see the world. Use hockey to meet people. Use hockey to learn about yourself. Uh, use hockey to, to meet a future partner. Like eat all these types of things. Hockey can be a marvelous learning tool, can be a, a, a way to see the world. Um, but I think more often than not, we just get the, the horse blinders on and it's no hockey is for one thing and one thing only. And that is a train track to the NHL. That ain't true. So yeah. Uh, thank you again to, uh, Justin for hopping on the show today. All right, Maddie QOD time. What do we got today? What are we looking at? Actually, just a quick bit of news before we get to that. Uh, Connor Timmons two year extension with the Leafs 1.1 million AAV. 
Okay, I know they were working towards that. That's good. I think I think what a lot of Maple Leafs fans are are wondering about as well. And last time I checked, there were no discussions, and that would have been a week and a half ago. I think Maple Leafs fans are wondering what's going to happen with Michael Bunting. I really do. Yeah. I don't think that you know the the softest start to his season helped, but I I wonder where the decimal point is going to end up here. I really do, and and how much term is going to be? Well, first of all, Connor, Connor Timmins, like that's a really good deal for for Connor Timmins. It's a really good deal for the Maple Leafs. I think a lot of people are wondering what happens with Michael Bunting here, who may have thought like, look, man, I'm going to ride shotgun with Austin Matthews. I'm going to fill the net. We know what happened with the Calder last year. Uh, I'm going to make some bank here. I wonder. I really, really do where where this one is going to end up because I I really don't i really don't know um how the organization feels about michael bunting is he a product of etc etc i think that's a curious one but uh yeah there you go connor the only thing i can tell you um interesting about connor timmons other than everything that you see on the ice i don't know what the actual term is for this but maddie marchese in the spirit of i will provide useless knowledge for you on this show connor timmons has one blue eye and one brown eye. Heterochromia. That's what it is? Mm-hmm. All right. Heterochromia. Yes, he has heterochromia. One blue eye, one brown eye. <laughs> That's about as much knowledge as I'm going to dish out on the show here today. All right, QOD time. The most interesting team in the NHL in advance of trade deadline. What's uh, What do we got served up? All right, let's start with this one from Twitter. This one from Mike, and he says, L.A., do they ride Copley the rest of the season, call up Peterson, or swing a trade for a goalie? Or do they finally land Chikrin? They have the capital for, tra- they have the capital for trade assets. Okay, so there's someone. <laughs> I don't want to say where, but there's someone that at least once a month, sometimes a couple of times a month, we... um. We uh we play a game called Fake Trade of the Month. Okay, I I know it's never to do great to do like fake trade talk on uh, on on radio, but this one this one's fun. This was someone who has. I spend so much of my time trying to protect identities here. Someone who um would be a lot closer to making trades than you and me. How about that, Maddie? Okay, so okay. here is speaking of LA. Here is. What this person sent to me when we were texting Sunday. Fake trade of the month. Carter Hart and Nick Sealer for Cal Peterson and Brant Clark. <laughs> so Carter Hart addresses the goalie issue. Nick Sealer is kind of your low rent Jacob Chikrin. Cal Peterson gets rid of the contract and you know commits the Philadelphia Flyers to some type of rebuild and they pick up a huge asset in Brant Clark. Carter Hart and Nick Sealer for Cal Peterson and Brant Clark. I know fantasy trade shows aren't a whole lot of fun, but every now and then, so that when you said L.A., I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll throw this one out in there. Yeah, Carter Hart, a big one. Nick Sealer, Cal Peterson, Brant Clark. Okay, you want, you, want, uh, you want some more breaking news? Sure. Okay, this one from our pal Frank Saravalli. Um, Vladimir Tarasenko 
is on his way to the New York Rangers. To the Rangers, hey. Well, we just talked to Fridge about that in the opening yeah. about you know what the uh, what the Rangers are going to do. How much uh, how much do they retain? Uh, just I'm, so I haven't seen. What's the return? Do we know? No, none of that yet. Um, but that looks like a pretty formidable uh, top nine forwards now, doesn't it? Uh, it really does. Um, and see that that's a, that's a really interesting one. Now, listen, uh, Artemi like. Russian hockey players have always loved going to New York. That is a destination for, I mean, listen, we saw with Artemi Panarin. Colorado tried to sign him. Yeah, not going to happen. He's going to New York. Um, Igor Shosturkin is there. I just mentioned Artemi Panarin is there as well. Like, this is maybe if Vitaly Kratsov ever works out. That has always been a destination that, that Russian players have always, have always, uh, always been intrigued by so i'm curious to see what goes back the other way and now what this does signal is this is some type of i don't know how big it's going to be but tear down for the st louis blues so i would wonder next about ryan o'reilly i would wonder about nico mikola i would wonder about ivan barbashev uh, Ryan O'Reilly, we uh, I think that's that's got to be front and center here. I think there's I think there's a few players on the St. Louis Blues because they're going to build this thing essentially around you know Thomas and Cairo up front as the two big names. I think you're going to see the emergence of someone like Joel Hofer um, next season. Don't know that they bring back Thomas Grice. It'll probably be Jordan Bennington and. And Joel Hofer, I think everyone there crosses their fingers and hopes that Scott Perunovic can stay healthy um, because we've kind of been robbed of seeing Scott Perunovic in the NHL. I I think this is this is the beginning of the teardown of the uh, of the St. Louis Blues, and this is Doug Armstrong, who, as we've seen before, if he doesn't think his team has a shot, he'll make those moves, and even if they're close, he doesn't think they have a shot, he'll still make those moves. Uh, holding out hope against hope that things could turn around, much like their Stanley Cup year. Seems like that ship has sailed. And Tarasenko, who originally asked for a trade, Maddie, I want to say two years ago, is now finally getting his wish. That's an interesting one. Okay, QOD, what else? Um, that was yeah, that was a barn burner. Um, okay, this one from Connor one. Power, uh, Carolina. They're the only team in the league with assets to pay big prices, a need to fill out a championship caliber roster, roster, and the ability to pick whoever they want to go after. They're in one of the most unique situations I can recall. Mm, I wonder about Timo Meyer with Carolina. Like I'm with you specifically with Max Pacioretty out. That opens up major cap space for them and their ability to, uh, to to wheel. The one thing that we've always come back to with Carolina is they don't believe in paying the big prices for the rentals. Um, Timo Meyer would be intriguing there. Uh, I think that they were uh, in the talks for Bo Horvat. Elliot had mentioned last night on TV with Carolyn that it, it sounds like there was at one point something between them and the Vancouver Canucks involving JT Miller going back to last summer. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm with that person that either tweeted or emailed in. I think Carolina is going to do something big. Like they're a legit 
they're a they're a legit contender for the Stanley Cup. And I don't think you come this close and have an injury like Pacioretty and not do something. So yeah, I can uh, I can totally see Carolina being that team. The the best part about Carolina is when you look at you know the money that they that they can play with. When you look at their their defensive group, it's really good. And their highest paid defenseman is Jacob Slavin at five point three million, and he's got three years left. Every defenseman is under contract. Like of the top four, they're under contract for this year and yeah. next year at minimum at less than five point three million dollars. Now they've got both goal, both of their well the 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 high price goaltenders both expiring at the end of this season. Right, Antti Ranta and Frederick Anderson, but Pyotr Kachetkov is kind of right there, no? So they have sure a new number is. one ready to step in. Yeah. Um, okay, and this one from uh, Adam Rowland, and I know you're going to love this one. Uh, Sabres for sure. Oh, yeah? Tons of cap space, tons of assets to move <laughs> without affecting the roster, and only a few key pieces yeah. away from being a legit threat. They score in bunches and just need a few shutdown guys or defenders and a goalie upgrade. They can afford to upgrade every position. Ryan O'Reilly back to the Sabres. Can you imagine, Maddie, for one oh, second? Boy. Ryan O'Reilly go. Uh, no, I can't see that happening. Um, see, I keep going back and forth on Buffalo. On the one hand, you know, there is the program that Kevin Adams has here. I, it doesn't look like he wants to, although he's, you know, checked in on players like Jacob Chikrin. It doesn't look like he wants to be, you know, super aggressive bringing in someone to help with a, a playoff push or to, to help with the playoffs. Don't know if they want to do a, a rental that way. Um, there is very much a, a belief that, you know, he wants to stick to the program and have this team grow slowly. Um, but you could make the point that this Buffalo Sabres team got to a place that Kevin Adams, the GM, thought that they would get to, but got there a year early. Like if you look at what Kevin Adams did in the off season, um, Eric Comrie comes in on the two year deal. Okay, uh, also Ilya Labushkin comes in, and other than that, there are no new moves. Like certainly they, you know, they uh, they signed their players. Matias Samuelson got the whopper of a contract. Tage Thompson got the whopper whopper of a contract. Dylan Cousins now just got the whopper of a contract, but. You know, Kevin Adams really didn't go outside the organization to bring in somebody new. Now, there is one school of thought that says sometimes teams will take you to a place where as a general manager you deserve or you feel you owe the team something, that they've deserved a move by the general manager, the shot in the arm, the extra forward, the depth D, the, the whatever. I don't know. I, I think I, I think Buffalo is going to be interesting because it doesn't seem up until now like Kevin Adams has wanted to deviate from his plan. But when you're as close as you are, and now let's not forget too, there's another competitor for a wild card spot here in the New York Islanders. So you could say there's a couple of teams chasing wild card spots here. I know the math isn't great for the Islanders and better for the Buffalo Sabres, but it's not like you're the only dog in the hunt looking to knock one of those wildcard teams out of the box. You're right, Maddie. I do like that one because it'll be curious to see if Kevin Adams wants to reward for success or stick to the plan. Good one. Uh, thanks to all the emails and all the tweets on the QOD. Thanks to Justin Davis, uh, author of Conflicted Scars, 
Um, thanks to Craig Birch, who submitted Doug Smale as the random player of the day. Dave Andrews, former president of the American Hockey League, who uh, went into the AHL Hall of Fame on Monday in Laval. And Elliot Friedman as well from Hockey Night in Canada and 32 Thoughts. Tarasenko to New York. Interesting. More on that on tomorrow's show. Thanks for joining me across the Sportsnet Radio Network.